0: No. will
1: Today's show is sponsored by Marriage Supply, the number one uh, adult toy site in the world. I think, Matt, as far you know, as we know.
2: Well, as far as we know, it's the <laughs> number Unless one. Unless there's toy. fake news or something, it's I, just...
1: don't, I mean, I don't have actual data to support that, but I believe it. And and you know, I mean, people believe in God, and there's you know, there's some yeah. data out there that says He's number one, He's the best. But other people have other gods and stuff. I'm just saying, I believe. It's the number one adult toy store in the world. It has no porn. It's all about helping couples kind of, you know, get a little bit of extra spark here and there. You know, mm-hmm. you know how if, uh, Friday, Saturday or Sunday night goes, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're like, you know, it's the weekend. You rekindle a little bit of that love, put the kids to bed or they're watching a movie or something. You're like, hey, uh, we're going to go watch a movie in their bedroom. You know, uh, marriage supply.com. There you go. All right. Yeah,
2: And it's, uh, you know, Fake news is one thing, but I'm talking about fake analytics now. Like the news okay. was like the big business for everybody, and now we have fake news. So I'm thinking even on data analytics, fake fake analytics, maybe.
1: Oh, for sure.
2: Like wouldn't there be a big market if you could be the Fox News of analytics for companies? You just come in and give them just super good analytics on all their stuff. They're the number one site. You know, you give yeah, they- them... Right. <laughs> the fake analytics if, if the news can't be real And you can't do facts Why even do analytics? Yeah Just b- you believe it You live in that bubble You're number one So
1: Well I mean People don't want facts anymore anyway
2: right? <laughs> I mean they don't, But they it, want to pretend like it's facts is what I'm saying So true. You can sell Fake analytics to people As fact Yeah False data That's a, that's basically the next step right?
1: Yes it is yeah.
2: <laughs> So, I mean, I mean,
1: but, and it, it'll sell. That's what I'm saying. That's my point. Nobody wants anything more like that. Uh, Like real data. You want just something to support your belief. Yeah. Right. Basically. That's what I'm saying. saying. Do I want to know that marriage supply.com is not the number one adult toy store in the world? I don't want to know that data. What if you, what if it's actually the last though? I don't want to know that data. for sure. I mean, you know what I mean? Like the the only how much real data do you want to know about what your wife really thinks about your body or your personality? Or I mean, how much you know what I mean? Like when it really comes to you, how much real data does anybody want? Nobody wants any real data at all.
2: I think that's the point. If you could do mind reading, you would not be able to survive what you would find out. I know. So, it also, I mean, I, I make fun of that, but that's what the situation with the news is. I don't see why it's that hard to recognize that if you try to look at all the bad stuff at once around the whole world, maybe yeah. you can't handle that. Like the amount of people that are being actually tortured and screaming their heads off in pain on earth right now. Right. It's just more than you could even begin to take upon yourself. And so Oh totally. You, trying to collect all that is not really a good Seems to almost be a mistake. I mean, it's not. Oh, yeah. it's not really. It's just you trying to handle it. it. You want the data to go somewhere. You want the right information to flow around the globe. It's a good right. thing that we can do that. But do you want all to go to into your head? No. That's what I'm saying. Nobody. <laughs> Is that good nobody for can,
1: anybody. That's what I'm saying. Just look at social media. Nobody's handling it well. I know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like think about when you do a post. You know what? You go. I, I love thinking about when people, somebody does a serious post or a TLDR. They go, okay. It's time for me to do this. And then they sit there and they write on their Facebook page. And then, you know, a couple people are like thumbs up or a smiley face. Or, yeah, man, that's exactly what I think. And then the one person that goes, you're so stupid. You don't know anything. That, that, that It keeps you up at night. You can't handle it. Like yeah. knowing that somebody out there in the world that doesn't even know you can be so condescending about your thoughts just destroys you. I mean, you, you just can't handle it. We weren't made to handle this many people. You, yeah. There's zero chance you can handle it. I mean, literally, what? We've, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but maybe like 150 people, you know, like a small community. Yeah, you can you can kind of handle that. You know where George is coming from when he says this to you or why Denise is acting this way. Or whatever. But you can't handle somebody in another country or another state that you've never met before just going off on you and trying to crush you.
2: Well, it's the formality of social media. Is it used to be you just post stuff and there wasn't any reason for anybody to, like, trash you for it or whatever. Right. You just post a picture of your food or just – it was informal. And now – whatever you put out uh, out there should be it's like a resume like yeah. polished and done so anything wrong with any statement you make is like golly why don't you think it through but it used to yeah. be you just post what you think right <laughs> now it's after you've revised it as many times as possible <laughs> and thought of maximum game <laughs> theory of how it'll affect you and your community in <laughs> the world right. and what you might get out of it in social gain or career liabilities and run the math then you hit post I know. And then you'd be judged as if that's how much effort you put into it either way.
1: But, but that's what I don't understand. is it, it, everybody just lost their damn mind. Do you remember when we started Emory, people, Christians would come up to us and go, Hey, you, you know, you're in front of the mic. Your success is God given. You got to use that mic to tell the world about the love of Jesus Christ. And I, and I bought into it. I was like, yeah, I guess I am supposed to do that, man. This. And then later I was like, wait a minute. That's just the, those people telling me that what, why am I doing that? These people paid, you know, like 15, 20 bucks to see our band tonight. And I'm up here talking about God. They they want to hear walls. Uh, mm-hmm. Why would I do what What bad that is unchristian like to what, you know, waste their time. if They're not interested in what I'm saying. And the only people that cared. And now people are telling you exactly what you have to say because you have a mic. Like it means something like you, I'm sure you heard Joe Rogan got in trouble for saying young people shouldn't take the vaccine or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Now in a, it's some sphere I can understand. He has a lot of influence and all stuff, but it's a podcast. And if you're getting your medical advice from that, you, there's something wrong with you. That's you. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that, that, I mean, come on, what are we yeah. doing here? You can't just, you can't just say because he has a microphone, he has to speak this way. And, and I'm not, I'm not even defending him, whatever he said, you know, but I'm more defending free speech of just like, he's sitting there talking to a guest and they're just talking and it. And it's a thought that he probably hasn't thought through all the way. And if he would have, he probably would have said it differently. I'm not defending him, but, yeah. but the big point here is why anybody that has a microphone now, you have to listen. And if you're too dumb, you, you do everything they say. Is that what people are saying? Like you're so dumb that you'll do anything that, uh, that uh, Joe Rogan says. That's that is so stupid. Who nobody listening to this do what I say? Well, there's a different type of
2: speech. I think people judge it weird without understanding that there's a type of speech where what you are thinking, those words are coming out of your mouth at that time. Yeah. And you'd be highly contradictory within maybe 90 seconds of what, and that doesn't mean you're a liar. (laughs) i know know, it doesn't or or you don't i mean you know there's a there's a lack of awareness of what the word context means and how things operate in contexts right is what and when you strip that away then you're left with words as if they're math formulas for uh political positions and polished speech and dialogue
1: whatever I i just get so frustrated because it's like you cannot even like make a mistake like Kids Our now. guests are here, so wrap it up, buddy. Finish well, your point I, and wrap it up. Here's my point. You can't make a mistake these days, and I'm actually a real concern now for parents is my kids could say the wrong thing on Roblox, and it could tarnish the rest of their life, and they might regret it and, and change and do better. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying uh, just let them do whatever, but, I, but there has to be some kind of a hum, human mistake world right that we live in like we all make mistakes and we can forgive it, it, the craziest thing ever and i this is my last point and i gonna leave it a cliffhanger we'll talk about it. we'll talk about it the bc club episode i think right now we need jesus more than we ever have <laughs> i'm serious i think that forgiveness and that savior and I, I, there's never been a time in my life where i was like whoa this jesus we need it anyway all right so uh yeah let's let's bring them on uh while you're bringing them on matt we've I'll got go anna
2: in. it looks like we've got anna and krista Well, it'll be Louise. Louise. I'm sorry. What did I say? We have Anna and Louise. We have Anna Lyons and Louise Winter is who we have. Yes. We have both. I thought we were just going to have one, but we have both.
1: Yeah. I think we're having both today. So,
2: Okay. Excellent. Well, I'm going to let them in see how it goes. Okay. Cool. Okay. All right. Coming up. It looks like we got both. Then we get audios connected. Louise, can you hear me?
0: Hi. Yes, I can hear you. Can you
2: hear me? Yes, I can. Very good. And Anna's connected now as well. Anna, can you see us and hear us? She doesn't seem like she totally can. Hi. Hi. Do you hear us, Anna?
3: Yes, I do
2: now. How are you? Oh, great. Well, it's nice to meet you guys. I'm Matt and this
1: is Toby. And we're happy you could join us today.
3: Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having us.
1: So so let me tell everybody who we have here today. Uh, We have the authors of the book, We All Know How It Ends, Lessons About Life and Living from Work and Dying by Anna Lyons and Louise Winter. Thank you guys for being here. Um, And Anna is an end-of-life doula, and Louise is a funeral director. So, I mean, y'all just sound like a ball of laughs. (laughs) I mean y'all do parties and stuff (laughs) that that was just I I was like man how did uh, I mean there's so many questions I have but just were y'all did y'all were y'all friends before this or did like being a funeral director and end-of-life doula bring you guys together how'd you guys meet
3: I'll let Louise tell the story she tells it much better than me
2: sorry i'm having trouble say that again louise i'm having a glitch just
0: switching to airpods can you hear me
2: yep yep that works good
0: okay okay i'm back now sorry okay Okay. you've been tasked Um,
2: with the story of how you two met (laughs)
0: yeah we met because i tweeted something about funerals and anna responded to it so at the very beginning of my journey into funerals, I was um, looking for people to plan their funeral with me so that we could explore mortality, ask questions about um, various beliefs and, um, and put together hopefully a fitting funeral plan. And I asked on Twitter, I said, does anyone want to plan their funeral with me? And Anna got back to me. So we arranged um, a meeting it was about, I think about 2015. It was quite a while ago now. And I went round to Anna's house in South London and we spent a whole day talking about everything but Anna's funeral because it turns out we had lots in common. Uh, we worked in similar environments. We'd worked for the same funeral director and had some very questionable experiences. And we realised that we needed to come together um, to put together this project, which we ended up taking lots of different forms over the years. Um, but that is where it all began. And we still haven't finished planning Anna's funeral. <laughs>
3: wow. We, we still haven't got round to it. <laughs> well, I'm hoping I don't die just yet. So maybe there's a bit of time. But who knows? Fingers crossed. Fingers so
2: crossed. funeral director is a uh, position that most people are familiar with. But uh, end of life doula. How about that? If you, is there a definition or a, a summary of that position? Yeah, I've never even gives? heard of that before.
3: Have you heard of a birth doula?
2: Yes, I have.
3: Yeah. So doula roughly translates as servant. It's come from the Greek word. And it's basically I support people practically and emotionally um, once they've been given a life limiting diagnosis. And I support them and their friends and their family. And then I continue to support their family and their friends after they've died.
2: Is that in, under the umbrella of palliative care then?
3: No. So uh, in the UK, palliative care um, doesn't—it's not end of life care. It's comfort care. So palliative care is all about looking after you holistically, taking care of your pain, looking after your sort of emotional side. Um, so we don't—we don't use this as end of life care. It is used at end of life, but it's also used alongside a diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so, your job entails more like when you say emotional stuff, I think even within the book you talk about doing stuff outside of just letting the person talk like you even maybe take their kids out to the playground or take their dog for a walk, clean the house, all kinds of stuff like that yeah
3: i I you know I work on a needs led basis, and everybody's different, and everybody needs different things, and so I basically do whatever whatever i can to support them and sometimes that means hanging out with their kids or walking their dog so that they can catch a break
2: wow how does somebody come to find your services what's the typical pathway that they um
3: lots lots of ways i get referrals from hospitals um but mostly over the internet or instagram people sort of they google and you know it it can be really frightening when you're given an end of life, uh, life limiting diagnosis. Do you know what kind um, of things think,
2: they're Googling to, to find you?
3: Um, yes. Yeah, support, help. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. How How long have I got? <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Wow. But I think there's been quite a lot of press over the over the last sort of six or seven years there's been quite a lot of press about doulas and so people think about them and they they're curious and so i get lots of lots of people contact me just wanting to know about it as well
2: how does this how does the the end of life doula uh interface with just the tradition of end of life and in other cultures and stuff is it a newer concept or does it take the form of, of things that have been in other traditions the way you see it
3: I think traditionally um, people would have died at home and so the family would have taken care of the person. But as we've sort of moved more into clinical and hospital care for end of life, that's become less and less. And the profession of of end-of-life doula is very new, but the idea of it is very old. It's about bringing death out of the hospitals, bringing it out of the shadows, bringing it into the home. It's making it more of a social event rather than a medical event.
1: Mm -hmm. That's interesting to me because I think, I don't know how it works here. Like, I don't know how it works for you guys over there here in America. It really does feel like, and uh, you mentioned this in your book, a lot of times, people just don't want to give up. Even the patient, the family members, the doctors, they don't want to give up. And so, so many people do end up dying in a hospital that they, you know, they'd only been in for maybe a few days or a few weeks as opposed to their home and with family. And like here, it feels way more clinical and just try to, you know, do everything you can. Uh, It didn't work. And then they're dead or something like that. I don't know. Is it, is, is it the same way with you guys or
3: Yeah, I think there's a real expectation that medicine has come so far that it will always make you better. There's always and you think that despite the statistics you might be that you know you might be in the 5% of people that do make it or you know whatever those statistics are yeah. i think a lot of people hope you know you don't want to imagine that your life is coming to an end especially if it's coming to an end prematurely or before you're ready and a lot of people panic because we've never lived through dying before we don't know what it feels like and even if they've put in preparations to st- Stay at home when the dying process begins it can be really frightening for the people who are around them it can also be quite frightening for the person if they don't know what to expect and so a lot of the time they'll call an ambulance and they'll end up in hospital well
2: uh, might we go in there when you said the uh when the what did you see you just said something about the beginning of the dying process yeah when does how what? Where is that delineation? I mean,
3: so for me, um, you are living right up until the point that you die. Um, and actually, the dying process is very, 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 very short. It's that tiny little bit when you're kind of in limbo, that liminal space that you inhabit between life and death. But I really believe that you live right up until the point. I never talk about my clients as dying. I talk about them living with an illness rather than dying from it.
2: What about the other end of that spectrum that says that you're always in the process of dying or something? Like I am right now in some sense. Yeah,
3: but I think that's a, a much easier concept to grasp when you're not ill. Yeah. I think if if you were living with a life limiting illness and someone said, Yeah, but everyone's dying, it would feel <laughs> a bit flip. Um and I, I think, you know, yes, we're all dying. We're born dying, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the one the one universal thing that we can all guarantee is that we'll all die. But I think what is so important is that we are we see people as living right up until the end.
1: Interesting. And then, and then Louise though, you deal with the end completely right with your job like uh, here in America a lot of times it's a lot of funeral directors it's usually it's often a family business like you get into it because your parents or how did you get into being a funeral director?
0: So I absolutely did not inherit a family business unfortunately (laughs) and that would have been a much easier start than the the entrance (laughs) I had into the world of funerals Um, and no one in my family has ever been a funeral director or interested in funerals And I'd actually never been to a funeral until I was 26. Um, My granddad died and it was the first funeral I ever went to. Um, I'd spent a childhood being quite sheltered from them by my parents. Uh, We weren't encouraged to go to funerals. Um, My sister and I would always stay at home. They would put on these dusty black suits and they would disappear off. And then they'd come back later that evening quite drunk and smelling like whiskey. Um, And that was my experience of... Funerals in England oh, wow. um, growing up. So, when I came to my granddad's funeral, age 26, I looked around and thought, what is going on here? It was at the crematorium. Um, there was a dusty, sort of patterned carpet. There was a strange thing at the front called a catafalque, which is where the coffin goes with these sort of curtains that were um, on a mechanical kind of thing and they would, they whirred round and closed around the coffin. Um, and the service lasted about 20, 25 minutes. We sang a hymn, played a few pieces of music and then left. Went to the pub and um, had lots of sausage rolls and whiskey, which is <laughs> pretty much the um, traditional British funeral. So that was my introduction to funerals. And I began to think, what is going on here? Do we need to do this differently? Surely things are changing and are funeral directors changing? What do funeral directors even do? Why do they have these miserable funeral homes? Because back then, um, no one was really doing anything that interesting in funerals. And most funeral homes were really depressing. Yeah. Um, sort of dusty neck curtains, really badly decorated, um, very dark and gloomy, and somewhere that nobody wants to go. So I was asked, I started asking, why is it like that? Is it because what goes on there is so awful that we need to hide it away and not engage with it? Or is it something else? And actually, there's an opportunity to come in and open the doors and do things differently. Um, So I left my career. I had quite a creative career before. I worked as a creative strategist. Um, I'd worked with lots of different brands, coming up with campaigns. And I um, started working in the world of funerals. So to begin with, I was a funeral celebrant. That's someone who leads the service from a non-religious perspective. And then I ended up becoming a funeral director because I was so frustrated with the funeral directors that I was working with. Um, and now I'm in the process of opening my own modern funeral home. Um, I have spent all day not looking for dusty net curtains, but trying out beautiful lemons and um, figuring out paint colours and finishes and the kind of table that's going to be in the funeral home. And it's going to be very different to that experience I had back in um when I was 26. Um, So it's been quite a journey, um, but it's also the most rewarding career choice I think I could have made.
2: That's very, very interesting to hear. Um, This intersects with our show in a way that... Uh One of the things that we do is just kind of walk into taboos and we found a lot in religion our upbringing and manners and I come from the rural south and never understood what i how I was supposed to act and why everything was so unspoken and um so stepping into taboos has always been something that we you know we've done and uh you know death is just a crazy one it's one of those ones where to me it seems like it's uh it hides in plain sight in that way where everybody goes, Oh, we're all dying. Of course we're going to die. Everybody like you, people just say that all the time. And it's so, it's said in a way that to not actually think about it or engage it. So you everybody just excel. Oh, of course we all know we're going to die. And then don't really know it <laughs> is the right. way. And then everything gets weird. And you start saying, well, why can you, you know, then you start saying that experience you were having, which is, wow, this is weird. And when you were 26, that's the one, that you have all, you know, when you start asking questions, people are like, just don't ask Louise, just don't ask Yeah, you're being rude. Like, I mean, what do you mean change the traits? What do you want to make them? Colorful? I mean, what are you talking about? Like, well, and if you, if you ask the question, they're like, look at you weird for why we do this or why we do that, you know, kind of thing. So
1: I I see, I feel that you must've had a similar experience in that way. And yeah, that's, that was what I was going to ask you. Did you, do you think now that people want it that way? They want it drab and dreary and sad because, that, that means a little bit more to them or something like it, it, it is strange that how did it's it get not, that it's way? not more celebratory
0: so i think it has been that way um because people haven't wanted to deal with it it's something that is really difficult to talk about and i think no matter what period of time you're looking at people have always struggled with it because it's the ultimate unknown for many people um It hurts when someone dies. Um, So society has had different relationships with it over time, but it's still always been really painful. And particularly in the UK, um, in the last, I don't know, 120 years, we've had two major world wars. We had a major flu epidemic in 1918, and we were traumatised. Lots and lots of people died. Everyone knew someone that had died either um, from the Spanish flu or in one of the world wars. And the British thing was to keep calm and carry on the stiff upper lip, um, to just not talk about how we were feeling and just um, carry on resolutely. And I think that has really affected our attitude towards death. And that is why people have not wanted to deal with it, why funerals were very sort of stayed and very stuck, and why funeral directors became very rich, because no one was challenging them. Nobody wanted to have to um, deal with that. So people didn't engage with it as part of life and therefore when they had to arrange a funeral they just would hand hand over the check and not question anything Um, and now things are really changing Um, I'm not the only funeral director in the UK with a very different approach Um, there are loads of us now um, all over the country mostly women I have to say and mostly women who didn't inherit businesses but women who chose to do this because they realized it was important And I don't think that what we're doing is making it celebratory or dismissing Mm -hmm. how awful death can be, but we're taking hopefully Mm -hmm. emotionally intelligent and considered approach to it, Mm -hmm. designing funeral services that are about giving people the space to do what they need. Sometimes that is um, a celebration Mm -hmm. of life and taking that approach really works for some people. Other people are in very different circumstances, and actually, a funeral that feels quite somber and heavy and very mournful is much more appropriate. Um, and what I like to think the sort of newer funeral directors can do is adapt and figure out okay, what is going on here, and how can we help you put together a funeral that really, really works for you? Um, And actually I think the interior design of the funeral homes is a big part of that there are some really beautiful funeral homes coming um, out and being designed at the moment and they're just much more healing spaces in the same way that if you go to a yoga studio you expect it to sort of smell lovely and be a certain way and have you know a lovely softness to it Um, funeral homes need to be the same I think they were they have been designed to be as uncomfortable as possible so you don't stay too long Um, The more conventional funeral directors don't want you to sit on the sofa for hours talking about the person that's died and discussing how you feel. They want you to quickly arrange the funeral, take a few boxes, then leave. Um, Whereas the new approach is about sitting down, feel comfortable, talk about what's going on, tell us about the person. Um, And hopefully it's just a much better space to be in when you're grieving.
2: Is that because of, of market pressures or innovation, or just turnaround time? The way, like, what is the design principle of the traditional funeral director that you seem to be at odds with? What What is their, you know, <laughs> point <of> view? <laughs> that, their aim is different? to
0: make maximum profit. Mm-hmm. So it benefits big businesses if they can do five funerals a day that last twenty minutes and are pretty much identical with just a few details changed. So the way that we work is probably not as efficient as that because each funeral is generally very different very different I know of um, a funeral home in London um, where they try to make the arrangement meeting take no longer than 25 minutes and it is just literally tick how many limousines do you want at the funeral you can have this coffin or this coffin and that's it there isn't any space to work out or to listen to all the options or figure out what the best thing might possibly be and
2: actually
0: the situation got so bad that the UK government stepped in Um, And they commissioned a huge investigation into the funeral industry to establish what was going on. And the findings have not been good, Um, which is partly why all these incredible new businesses are emerging who are being really transparent about what they do and how much they charge and what's on offer.
2: I'm thrilled to hear that because, I mean, I'm not surprised if the thing's taboo in the first place. And then, I mean, it almost feels predatory that you get in the situation of what you don't want to deal with. You know, you don't want to. Have to do a lot, so you just pay, and you know it's going to be expensive, and you just do the amount of limousines and whatever it is that you you know those people could probably be drawn out into having a meaningful thing occur in the process of grieving that just turns into a quick transactional thing that they want to get over with, and thus no not doesn't even. Uh, there's no pressure to innovate or update, and it stays this old, weird, outdated way. At that, you know
1: that's well. A gross it's interesting thing. too to me that, and and this is one of the reasons why we wanted to have you guys on. The when the person dies, they don't even get to experience the funeral that we know of. You know, maybe 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 they're floating around, but not that we know of that they get to experience it. So the funeral and the, even the gathering, I guess, Anna, with, with you, family, friends, or that relationship is all about in a way the life of that person so experience you know like the funeral should be time for all those people to come together and like a wedding in a sense to me it seems like it would be more like wait you know you get together and you celebrate and then this is oh wow we remember when you know my daughter was this little and now here she's being married or, or you know whatever it might be it does seem like the industry or the business of it is get in get out and that was their life and i think that's what crushes people a lot like like you said uh like I think it was your grandfather, um, passed away. Like that was it, like get in get out. And then we go, we go to this other place and talk a little bit, but there, there was probably way more people maybe at the actual funeral by the time you got to the pub it was way less people, but you could have spent time reflecting and, and doing some of those things. I think that we've kind of missed that with death. I don't know if that's part of the reason why you guys wrote this book, but it seems to me after just starting this, but we got it a couple of nights ago. Um, you guys are really about, Anna, you even said this, uh, Life, like talking about death, doesn't seem as important to you guys. Is that true?
3: I think if we normalize it, if we make it part of every day, it doesn't have to be this sort of big Everest to climb. And I think if you start talking about the fact that we are all mortal beings while you're young and well, um it's some it's a much easier conversation to have it's much more loaded if you're only talking about it because you've been given a diagnosis or because somebody that you love has just died
2: do you think of uh the funeral and the procedure as for the uh how do you for for the li, for the living or for the dying like the the wishes of the person die, how do those two things integrate like who's it for i know there's more than one answer obviously but <laughs> how to sl- slice into that
3: I Can think I my this yeah go
0: on. No, actually because I just want to say that I once had afternoon tea with a spiritualist um who believes that um people do attend their own funerals and he brought a message to me actually saying that the dead are very unhappy with their funerals and everything mm-hmm. needs to change so he was trying to set up as a spiritualist funeral director to try to give Um, dead people, the funerals that they wanted, which I thought was really interesting. But mostly from my perspective, the funeral is for the people who survive the person that has died. Um, That sometimes gets more complicated if religious beliefs or different faith systems get involved. Um, I remember speaking to one funeral director who was horrified that most of the funerals that I help with are to do with um, supporting the people who... um, have got to attend the funeral. Um, they're about the person that's died, but they are for the benefit of the living. Um, and he was horrified because he said funerals are for the glory of God and to prepare the person for the afterlife. So it can get quite complex. Um, it just depends on your upbringing, your values, your belief systems, all of that comes into play at the funeral. But I think I'm working mostly in a sector. Society which has lost a lot of religious belief and belief in the afterlife is less important. So it's become more about the life of the person that's died and serving the needs of the people who've left behind. Is that what you were going to say, Anna?
1: I yeah. We absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's fun, well, I'll say so. We grew up, uh, my grandfather was a pastor and we grew up very fundamentalist Christian, you know, very, you know, very small backwoods church, like 40 people speaking to all this stuff. But whenever there would be a funeral, the pastor would always do like an altar call to try and save you. And he would use the person's death like that. They, they I don't know if if they if you've ever been to a funeral like that, but here uh, in the South, it happened a, a bunch. And they would use the person's death to go, look, you don't know when you're going to die, so you better get right with the Lord. And that was, <laughs> even when I was little, that was offensive to me because I was like, you're just co-opting this person's whole life for your message that you believe. And, and this might be somebody here that doesn't believe in God and just wanted to, you know, flew here or, or traveled far to to pay their last respects. And that always, I I, I hated that religion almost entered into it. I know that like, I believe in God and I, I, you know, to some extent, I guess I still believe in a, an afterlife, but to co-opt a funeral with religion and a message like that always seems so rotten. It seems so disrespectful to the person, uh, because it just, that was like some time for the pastor to get his little bit in there as opposed to remembering the person's life. Um, and one of the things that I, y'all were talking, y'all talk about this in the book, but, um, you, you said that y'all, y'all said that, uh, death is not failure, but how do you talk to people that can't get past that? Cause it seems to me like if I were to die right now or get a diagnosis where I was going to die sooner than later, I would feel like a failure to like my kids. I got three kids, uh, you know, un- none of them are even teenagers yet. And, uh, it does seem like they're, it just feels like failure. Like, oh, couldn't I just have lived a little bit longer? Why did my body crap out on me or something like that? Do people <laughs> often think that they, they're failures if they're dying? It seems like maybe if you made it to like 97 years old, you might be like, well, you know, I did okay or something like that. But the younger you are or maybe the less you feel like you achieved, it seems like death is a failure.
3: I think so. In the book, I talk about that in sort of regards to doctors because doctors – are trained to cure people. You know, they most most doctors work in curative medicine as opposed to, or they they use active treatment rather than palliative treatment. Um, and a lot of doctors find it very very difficult to talk about death, to say to somebody, "You are going to die." I can't make you better because they see themselves as having failed at their profession um so i talk about that a lot because i think it is really really important that we stop seeing death as a failure you know when young people die when anybody dies before they would consider it to be their time um it's usually because their bodies are broken because there is something wrong because they have an illness or a disease and it's absolutely nothing to do with them having done anything wrong and i think it it can it's a really dangerous thing to sort of blame ourselves for our yeah. bodies ultimately you know doing something that we have no control over
2: mhm that's yeah. th- and that starts like um you know if you go in your time when you 're ninety seven everybody can kind of deal with that but the uh yeah. there's a shame probably there like if i it, maybe it is my choices that caused me to die i shouldn't have drank so much I shouldn't have done that, I could have been healthier like there's there is You can see how people's inner monologues can tell them, even if they are sick, that that it is their fault. Why did I go skydiving? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) but I think, you know,
3: ultimately, ultimately it it doesn't help us to blame ourselves and Mm. it doesn't help us to sort of live a good life with whatever we're living with. And so I think it's really important that we give ourselves a break and be a bit kinder to ourselves about stuff like that i also think the language that we use is really important so we talk a lot about not using combative language you know we don't talk about somebody losing a battle we don't talk about someone having fought Mm -hmm. an illness because the fact is it doesn't matter how much you want to live if your illness is ravaging through your body you're not going to make it you know it it doesn't make any difference that you have thought every day for however many days i want to live i want to live and i think the idea that the you can battle harder and win i think is a really really dangerous one you can't you can't win it's not a battle to be won or to be fought it's it's just an illness to live through or not live through
2: mhm well the the whole thing about feeling shame like that yeah, both of these things do that—the same thing, where it's it prevents you from dealing with it. That prevents you from thinking about yeah. your death, since you don't want it to be your fault. Like you can see that, and so yeah. it would lead one to not have processed it or talk to their kids about it, when that would have been the good thing because you're worried, or or whatever how it's going to look or you're going to feel about it. And yeah. then in the same way, when you with the battle stuff. Um, that leads right into not doing end of life stuff because you right until the very end, were in some battle with something like and, and you, you won or lost. And it turns out you lost. So
3: I think it feeds into the whole idea of failure because it's this idea that you didn't fight hard enough. Yeah. If If you consider or if people consider you to be fighting a battle against your illness, if you die, then, oh, well, they didn't fight hard enough. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it's not a failure. It's absolutely not.
2: It gives the implication that they weren't strong enough to live for absolutely. you, for me, yeah, for themselves, absolutely. for whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I, like, I think, you know, talk, talking about having kids, you know, you leave behind your kids and the idea that people are saying, well, if they would maybe fought harder or, you know, it's like, well, no, they didn't want to leave you. They didn't, they fought with everything that they had. It had nothing to do with how hard they were fighting or, or not fighting.
1: Mm-hmm. Do because of that, do like the family members or friends when you, when you when you're being an end of life doula, uh, do they ever come to you and say you need to say this, or do they, do they try to move you to, to be certain yes. ways with the the patient, or
3: absolutely and vice versa? Because I think the thing is it's not just the person who's ill who's living through and with this illness and everybody responds and reacts to it in different ways everyone has different needs everyone is in a different place with it at different time and so I often have to negotiate families who one person wants and needs something the other person wants and needs something else and it can be really tricky I think illness can be really divisive we have this sort of romantic idea that if somebody's unwell everyone will come together and you know sit around and be there for them and with them and lots of the time that's not possible
2: Especially this last year, a lot of people have died alone, right?
3: Yeah, lots of people have died alone, especially, I mean, I I don't really know what it's been like in the U.S. um, But here, still people are dying on their own because hospitals have mostly had to close their doors. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, but what's been quite interesting is lots of people, a huge percentage of people always said that they wanted to die at home. Um, and then ended up going into hospital to die but since covid um, more people have actually died at home than normal Mm. we've had quite a large percentage increase because people know if they go into hospital they won't be able to be with the people that they love at the end
2: that's actually interesting because That's the very thing. It's like you feel like if you're about to die, you just got to be that got to get hooked up to that. I mean, maybe there's a chance and all that. Like, that's just so hard to not have that mindset. Like, it's well-meaning, obviously, you know, to think, well, he's sick and then he needs to fight. And you, Grandpa, you need to go because you got to fight this. You got to get back here for us. I mean, but it might not be the time for that, you know. And if you could just decide to experience your remaining time in a different scenario... It could you right, know, it could obviously be the best you know, thing yeah. for everybody in the long term. Yeah, I think, I think
3: we, if we can stop seeing, stopping having active treatment when it really can't do us any good as giving up, I think that would be a really important step. And actually, statistics show that if you have palliative care running alongside active treatment from diagnosis, you live longer. People live longer and more comfortably with it. It's not, you know it's not always the best thing to have all of the all of the treatment right up until the end
1: mm-hmm. you know and Louise did uh how did COVID affect the funeral life I mean did, did were you able to continue doing funerals or was it like small just way smaller how did that go
0: so the government was very vague to begin with and then overnight everything changed. So during the first wave last year we went down to 10 people being allowed to attend a ceremony so it was just immediate family only and that was difficult because for some people immediate family is is quite a vague term and it's quite a prescriptive term as well and some people have chosen family and not everyone has a, tra- um, a straightforward life so That was quite tricky to navigate. Um, Overnight, we had to get very used to dealing with live streams. Um, We would occasionally live stream the funeral pre-COVID. And suddenly, we were live streaming every single funeral that we were uh, working with. So the crematoria had to adapt really quickly and get all the technology in place and learn how to use it, which (laughs) took a long time for them to figure out how to press record um, on the the webcast um, button, unfortunately. Um, And then funerals changed, so 30 people have been allowed for quite some time now, um, probably about a year, and we've really adapted. Um, It's been really incredible to see how much meaning and value people have found in more intimate ceremonies. So 30 has felt like quite a good number because it's, for most people, it's sort of enough to have the main people there and then everyone else can join in virtually and people have really come together to put together the most incredible ceremonies and within the restrictions have been able to have some really beautiful funerals. You know, things like um, at one point, flowers weren't available. So people were reaching out to their communities, people that they didn't necessarily talk to, especially in London where not everyone knows their neighbours. But they were asking neighbours to donate flowers and foliage from their garden so that they could have some flowers on the coffin because that was the only option at one point. Um, we'd had people who couldn't travel to be at the funeral, um, because they were all abroad and it wasn't safe for them to be here or they weren't allowed to be here. Um, and so no one would have been at the funeral. So they have done things like contacted an old school friend who happens to still live here and asked them to attend and represent the family instead. So we've come up with these really incredible solutions with the people that we have worked with. And it's, um, it, it's been really difficult, um, particularly during the peak of the first wave and especially during the peak of the second wave um, after Christmas, where it was really, really awful and really traumatic. And we were dealing with people who were totally traumatized by how their person had died. Um, And as of this morning, the government announced that all restrictions on funerals are going to be lifted on the 17th of May. which is um, also going to be challenging because they have um, decided that the venues will be responsible for setting the numbers. So although it seems like everything's about to change again, actually nothing is going to change because the numbers will still stay the same because the venues can only safely hold a certain number of people with social distancing in place. Um, So we're about to go through a big shift again with people's expectations. But I'm really pleased to say that people have really valued funerals. We had an opportunity just to dismiss them, to get rid of them completely. But people really wanted to have a funeral, even if it was the most simple funeral, just being there at the crematorium for five minutes during the first wave last year, people wanted to be there and they um, put themselves through all sorts of things so they could just have that five minutes.
2: That's pretty amazing. To, that the technology the technology piece there Toby and I are in the uh, music business we're you know punk rock musicians and are witnessing the shift of this uh what I think of as mixed reality where there's digital streaming and in-person events that are mixed not one or the other broadcast like a live concert broadcast or this or that or a pretend thing it's just there is obviously emerging in all kind of industries now this idea that you can do a mixed thing thing where it 's multiple places and multiple open channels and layered things like that, and that 's probably here to stay because there's a, this we 've been having people can come to our online uh, of uh, these of uh, special events that we make that are digital first that have never been would never be able to come to a concert or never see us or anything like that, and that has to be true with funerals like the ability to lean into that and be able to make an experience of reflection and grief or mourning or however you think of it, or religious where people can participate remote is really adding something. If you can get them to mix together without being distracted from one another. So the innovation happening in that area because of that is, seems like it's a very, very positive thing that this has sped up.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's here to stay because it has been really beneficial um there's definitely an art to including people who are attending virtually. And hopefully the, the celebrants and the ministers and the faith leaders have learned now, after a year, how to include people. So even if you're watching on a computer at the other end of the world, you still feel like you're involved. Um, and there are other great things as well. Um, most of the crematory have now got screens in place, which sounds very basic, but it means that anyone who can't be there, who would like to give a tribute, for example, can pre-record it and have it uploaded to the system and then it can play on the screens and we did some really moving things with voice notes um there was a funeral for a gentleman his entire family were in new york and poland and they couldn't be there it wasn't safe so um they created just the series of voice notes they were all played and they were all messages to him and the chapel was just empty apart from um from me and my colleague with just these incredible voice notes playing mm. so I think technology definitely has a positive role to play in all of this, and it would have taken the funeral industry about ten to fifteen years yep. to embrace any of this so one good thing is that this all had to be embraced and it had to happen overnight
2: it seems like uh creative media will start to become part of the 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 form the recipe you know there will be creative media like you said that like that's just the beginning of people's innovation and creativity when they start thinking oh well i can make this video or we can make this little documentary for the we can do this together and we can have this person piped in and this person respond there's everything will emerge once you get uh, people in that mindset and it'll be quite creative which is quite far off from the funeral homes we were describing from the last generation or two that have gotten so you know whatever way it is that makes us think is so weird so i'm really thrilled of like you know, that there's younger and newer people that are asking questions from the ground up of why do we do and
1: what can we do? I think that's really beautiful. I think that's the time we live in right now, for sure. Everybody's asking, why are we why have we done it this way for so long? You know what I mean? I think that's that's the new thing. I want to talk about the book. Uh, OK, so there's a couple of things. Uh one is I'm a hypochondriac, so reading it, I think, oh, everything that y'all talk about, I'm like, well, I got that. That's gonna get me. Only good thing about being a hypochondriac is one day when I get the diagnosis, I go, I knew it. Told you, <laughs> I knew it. Told you. So at least I'll have that. Now the mm-hmm. uh, the other thing is, and I love this, so I hope you guys take this as a compliment. I think this book, you can hop around and really enjoy it. You don't have to read it from A to B or you know A to Z. You can just hop around. Like there's just so many neat little sections of it like i was just kind of hopping around and like you uh give your uh friend bernard's recipe and then i'm, I'm scrolling down and then you have real life experiences of like uh someone who got Parkinson's and someone with dementia and then you go on down and like it, talk about uh sex after you've been diagnosed or what is sex like after you know not necrophilia i'll make the joke there but uh i mean there's so many little nuggets here that, what was that kind of the plan? I mean, I hope you' all take that as a compliment I, I i think that's a great way of writing. It doesn't feel especially because the topic's so overwhelming. It feels like you can yeah. kind of hop around and you you know this is I can only take this much, so let me hop you know a chapter or two on and I can start reading there as well. Was that kind of part of your writing process?
3: Yeah, it felt really important it's it They are such big topics that we talk about, and you need. A lots of people will need not to have to read it all at once so we wanted to make sure that it was really accessible that you could just find the section that was relevant to you if you just wanted to read that section so yeah exactly i'm i'm really glad that you enjoyed it like that
2: well what what is the uh you know t- let's just talk about sex and end of life that's interesting enough let's just what mm-hmm. what did uh how does what is the relationship you see there And what's the norm or what would surprise people?
3: I think it's really important that it's going back to the whole, you are still living, you know, people who have a diagnosis are living right up until the end. And one of the things that people talk about a lot when they're given a diagnosis or they're unwell is that people stop seeing them as sexual beings. They stop sort of, you know, thinking or they're worried about touching them they're worried about intimacy with them and actually it's really really important for some people to continue to have intimate relationships up until the end and people don't talk about it but just because you're unwell doesn't mean you don't want to have sex in fact sometimes it can mean you want to have more sex because you feel like you're not going to get to do it that much for very for very much longer how and i think the, touch
1: oh, yeah go ahead sorry sorry, sorry no I, I, interrupted
3: you. I was just no no i was just going to say touch is really really important and it felt really important to talk about the sort of lots of lots of people who are their partners are unwell, are frightened to touch them. And because we don't talk about it, um, they they haven't got anyone that they can say, is it okay? Or, you know, what do I do? And how do I do this? And I think we don't talk, I don't talk about it very much in the book, but just by having it there, it sparks the conversation.
1: That's great. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things is you guys really do, tap into the things that nobody talks about. I mean, they just don't like, I would have never thought one, of, one of the sections in here is called five things. Nobody tells you when an unconscious person is going to die. And I never thought about that. Like if my wife was unconscious, just, just the, I like, I, I do think this is such a, it's, it's not a manual. That's not what this is, but like you guys go into things that nobody, like I wouldn't even have thought to look that up on the internet or what it like all you have so much information in this book that is just so helpful And I'm I'm assuming this is based on a lot of experience you guys had. Like people didn't see some stuff coming, and you guys are able to put this in a a written format for people as well, right? Like, I mean, have you guys dealt with so many questions like this? Is is this kind of your answer to it, to some of the questions like that?
0: Just to jump into, just to talk about that particular five things. Actually, Um, it was written by my um, one of my best friends, Anne, um, after her dad died. Um, Although it was expected because he was living with an illness and had been for a very long time it came very quickly and it was in very traumatic circumstances and the five things that she's written about um, her dad being unconscious and being in a London hospital and it was around New Year and she had terrible experiences with the hospital team we felt it was really important to include it because often there's an obsession with around books that are to do with death and dying. There's an obsession with the good death and that you can create this you know, sort of dream scenario and it's sort of about being in a bed of roses with your grandchildren around you and um, all your favourite things. And actually, for a lot of people, that is not the reality. And I think um, both Anna and I were really struck with the situation Anne was in and how honest she was about just how awful and traumatic it was for her and her family but how they did find a way through and, and actually they were really engaged with the funeral process because they saw it as an opportunity to heal a little bit over what had happened in the hospital and they had some time um, with him um, outside of the hospital, away from all of the machines and all of the stuff that had gone on in that environment, just in a very peaceful, beautiful place with candles, able to say goodbye. And he was in his own clothes and he looked completely different from that traumatic, awful experience they'd had in hospital. So we felt it was important to say the bad things as well as the good things, because everyone's experience is going to be different. And we didn't want anyone to feel excluded or ashamed because they weren't able to create this sort of perfect dreamlike death that Mm. some people get to have.
1: Yeah. You even go on like that. uh, Another one, you, uh, uh, five things I wish everyone knew about cream, the cremation process. I mean, like you guys are (laughs) kind of hitting everything. I wanted to just, if you were going to tell people what a, you know, the goal of this book or the takeaway to me, and I, I want you guys to elaborate and see, I might not be wrong. It seems like this book is how to have a, 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 good death. It might not be, it might, you know, not, that's not escaping the pain, the sadness, the the loss, any of that. But like, it almost feels like you, this is a, a great book for, I, I do want to die well in a sense. I, I do want to, uh, this be a culmination of my life and I don't want to have that guilt or that, you know, only sadness. I want a little bit of celebration of the life I got to live and stuff like that. I don't know if you guys can expand on that, but what do you want people to take away from this book?
3: I think I want people to be empowered. I think knowledge um, is really, really important and it can lead us to make different choices and Because we don't talk about these subjects, we don't know very much about them. And so when we get diagnosed with something or when somebody we love dies and we're organising a funeral for the first time, we're unaware of all of the choices we've got, all of the options that we've got. And so with this book, we let people know what you can and can't do. We let people know what's available and what isn't available. And I think it empowers them to be able to make choices and to make decisions that they want to make rather than just kind of letting things happen.
2: Yeah. So with overall, do you think of the that death is something that we, is it something I put this way? Sorry, let me rephrase that. When we talk about doctors, for instance, they see so much death and dead bodies and things like that, that, there is a sense where they're used to it It doesn't freak them out obviously they've seen so much of it but also they have uh developed some attitude in general that tends to be on maybe callous or disconnected from it but that's not the energy i get from you guys who are also see it in high amount of repetitions but my question is to to see it so much as you do does it lose is it that you don't see death as negatively as other people or you're less freaked out by it or you don't even think it's bad i'm trying to place but that, that you know in the difference to how it's doctors like and you guys joke about death and all of those things so you have a very integrated sense about it um is the words i'm trying to use for it. but how do you see that as different than doctors and do you just think of death as Not that not bad. Do you have a way of phrasing that?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I it's really difficult. Death equates to loss. So, you know, if my great great grandfather died in his sleep when he was 105 and he'd seen the world and he'd lived the life he wanted to live, I don't think that can be described as bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I think any young person who Has a life to live. I think it's difficult. I can't, I don't know if I can ascribe the word bad to it. I think it's always going to be difficult. Just because I work in this environment and have done for a long time doesn't make it any easier. I still feel it. I still, I'm still frightened of dying myself. I'm Mm -hmm. still worried about dying young worried about leaving my kids without a mom um I think it what it does it allows me to talk about it and to process it and to know that it's important to grieve and to honor how I feel about things it doesn't make death and dying any easier I don't think
2: um do you have any fundamental issue with the quest for immortality itself or if if you know life extension or what what it would mean to become you know digital humans or whatever stuff like that with the the do you have a different point of view on the striving to extend life given your view basically
3: I think if you're really really well and you want to strive to end to continue your life forever then you know why not everyone can do whatever they want to do I I don't think it's possible and I think it's I don't I find it difficult to understand the idea that quantity is better than quality. So I think Mm. for me, and I can only talk for myself, I would rather live for 70 years really, really well than live for 170 years and be very unwell and unable to do the things I want to do. I think it all comes down to what matters most to you. What does a good day look like? how how can you live well with your years as opposed to how many years can you possibly live?
2: Mm-hmm. That's that's really well put. And if you think about all the stories where immortality is involved, it doesn't, they're never just infinitely happy. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> there's a lot of ways it could go wrong yeah. and uncertain, whatever it would mean to extend life indefinitely. It almost always seems to me like that's a, if you think about it logically, it's the most fundamental thing you want to survive. I know, but it kind of doesn't make sense if you could. So therefore death is here to deal with somehow. It seems like
1: the physical body keeps going. doesn't mean things will get better. It could be better or worse. And who knows? It could be worse and you could be worse. Yeah. I mean, what what am I going to be like at 140 years old? You might not want to be around. (laughs) That that might not be a nice guy or a good guy or anything like that. So anyway, ladies, we thank you so much for your time. This is great. Uh, Tell people where they can find the book and where you want to send anybody listening. Um,
3: you can find us on Instagram. Uh, we're at What. You can find the book on Amazon and in all good bookshops, I think. Is it coming out on May 18th, Louise, in America? It is, yeah.
0: yeah. We've already had our UK launch, but um, it will be in stores on May the 18th.
2: Well, thank oh. you for sending us copies. Oh. I'm excited oh. to look at it more now that I have it. And congratulations on the release and, and everywhere else. Thank is you. there any... Um, things the average person can look for in funeral, like care, just an average American listener. I don't know about the money side of it or anything, but what are the tips for what to look for, not to go down just the average pipeline to put some thought into it, especially if you have the time on the front end of it to, you know, think about.
0: Actually some really progressive, interesting funeral directors, um, in the U S as well. Um, One is a friend of mine, Amy Cunningham, um, or Cunningham. I'm not sure how you um, pronounce (laughs) it. Um, She's based in um, Brooklyn, and she has set up a brilliant funeral home um, where it is more progressive, and she's giving people options and letting people know about natural burial. So I think the main message, no matter where you are in the world, um, is have a look around. You don't just have to go to the nearest funeral director. Have a look around. There are options. There are people doing quite interesting things. And find someone that's a good fit for what you're looking for and the kind of funeral you want to have. Don't make any rush decisions. Take time. Do some research and choose someone who is the right person for you.
2: That's great. And especially if you have the ability to face it in advance to think about and plan. Is there a certain length of time that people should plan their death? Should I have already have my death plan, for instance? I don't have one is what I mean. I'm I am not have either.
0: I think it depends on your situation um, I, I tend to find that if people micromanage their own funeral plan too much it becomes really unhelpful for <laughs> the people who have to enact that funeral um, we, you know we've had some people try to you know organize the cashmere throws that will be placed on the seats and the canopies wow. that will be served and we try to stay people away from that kind of funeral planning because really a funeral is for the people who are left behind to honor the person that's died and do what they need to do to move forward. Um, so, but it's quite complex. It really does depend on your situation and who's in charge of arranging your funeral and um, and what will work for the people who are left behind.
2: That's interesting. It, it can so be a really design-
0: valuable thing to do.
2: That that, you know, it's all about their wishes and whatever way that has a place for people, but it might be nice for people to understand the design principle, like you just said it there is it's for ever like you can think in advance that the function of this will be for all us to process we need to design into that experience for ourselves in the situation, considering the wishes of the person all in one exactly. group project. Exactly. I like it.
0: Exactly. And actually just having a conversation with the people around you, um, who will be affected by your death is probably the most valuable thing.
1: That you can do well thank you guys so much for your time the book's called we all know how this ends and i i tell you from what i've read so far it's just great i really have enjoyed it i, I think it's really eye-opening and uh answers questions that i didn't even know i had and wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't wanted to ask or feel uncomfortable about like i said i'm a hypochondriac so uh you guys did a great job thank you so much for your time today thank you, thank you guys you very so much. much
3: for having us a- Thank you, thank you so
0: much. And I apologize for my cat; she was running around. Oh, that's so I hope okay. the didn't pick her up. <laughs> no,
1: <problem. laughs> my
2: kids and no. dogs are running around, so no worries. Yeah. at all. And this this will, will be out um, in, the f- in the next few days, so we'll yep, send you this a link. It will come out on it. Wednesday. So
0: amazing! Thank you, thank you so much. Thank awesome. you. Okay, take care. Have a lovely
2: thank day. You. Sweet dreams. Bye. Bye. Well, Toby. All right. That's a battle
1: of the accents. Yeah, I know. We lost. Oh, God, didn't we? <laughs> I mean, they they could say anything. Yeah. If they, imagine if they said everything, what? imagine if it was like, a, what's the uh, old fable or whatever where the guy whispers into his ear to to the girl up in the window, you know? What is that? Rapunzel? Is no, that's not Rapunzel. Oh. Remember the movie Roxanne with Steve Martin? It's like that. but Oh, yeah, yeah. You give, the, you give the good-looking guy yeah. the words to say to win the girl's heart. Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, yeah. So uh, imagine if if uh, Anna and Louise we ju- we could just say what we said and they say it. This, po- this podcast would be massive because yeah. they it sounds so much better. Like I think sometimes we say smart things, but we sound <laughs> like this. We sound well, like Imagine this. if the we were the funeral home the directors.
2: directors. <laughs> we imagine that. All right, we'll check, put all your back to <laughs> truck up. I mean, we're going to go in here. Y'all going to run on in here in a little bit. We'll get now this we got this Zoom
1: a- this time. Y'all come check out this <laughs> we Zoom. This we got Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Look up on the screen. We got Zoom. <laughs> this is this is Granddad up there. He's got a message for everybody about Grandma. Now y'all be can, quiet and listen.
2: We can handle the hospitality after probably a bit yeah. though. Yeah, come get your fried chicken, hang out oh, over yeah. here, and talk. We can. Yeah. We're qualified for that part of it.
1: It is strange that you don't. You really that that is a great point they made. Like really, when you go to a funeral, it's about getting out of there as fast as. The the the, uh, the <laughs> formal part. Nobody likes that. I know. People. No. Uh, why I don't understand. Why does anybody like.
2: I mean, no secret, I seek the informal, but I don't understand. (laughs) Nobody seems to like anything formal. It's always painful for every second. But yet, Uh we love every formal British royal family, funeral, the wedding. Like, it's so for the prom. I mean, I can't get over this. I've never understood those things.
1: (laughs) The number one greatest funeral I ever went to was at a traditional black church where an elderly lady had passed away. It was somebody's grandma, and I went. It lasted, it was at least two hours, and everybody sang. And I just, it was just wonderful. Like, it, I mean, some people sang really badly. Like, they were, like some some people didn't sing well, but I mean, it was like emotional and real. So it didn't matter. Do you know what I mean? It, it wasn't formal. It was like, maybe they like away. formal, get to get,
2: like they said, to get you out of there. Yeah. Like, right. don't be comfortable. Right. What are you talking don't about? Don't turn remember. this over.
0: Yeah, like church it's, used
2: it's, to be shorter until they started getting the right. long sermons. Remember, sh- churches used to be short. Yes. Like, well, I grew up going to church. It was like going to a funeral or a wedding or whatever. It's like, well, nobody wants to be here. We're going to lunch, a buffet. Let's get out here right. up eight fifty. You know, it's it eleven fifty eight. Yeah. Let's go. Like, okay, rap. You know, it's like that's easier to disconnect from and just right. Not and know you did it and check the box. I guess. And
1: it really is that. That's a very accurate word. It's a disconnect. We have a disconnect from death so much so that we don't even want to talk about it or think about it we want to try and cure it no matter what because it is the most horrific scariest worst thing in the world that we don't know hardly anything about yeah you know what i mean you know you got this diagnosis but that's cancer not death or yeah that's true you say
2: obsessed with that and the battle like that's the way people distract and then don't talk about death you just talk about oh i'm in a battle
1: you know yeah just fighting every day All right. Well, uh, you listeners out there, if you're not in the BC club, well, uh, we are going to pray for death for you. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, but God put it on my heart to let you know that you better join the BC club or else sign dash JC and and that policy. You can't
2: blame me directly Uh -uh. or Toby. It was, we were had our, both of our hands on a Ouija board. When it ca- that's how we got the policy. That said Wait, Jesus to spoke
1: through us that to us. He uses anything.
2: Yeah. So just, wow. I mean, you know, it's not me personally responsible. I did have I don't one want finger anybody on to die. that board. I,
1: Do you want anybody to die? No. But if everybody lived, how bad would that be? Way don't worse. Even, don't, don't even answer it. Yeah. Don't even answer well. it. So just join the BC club and you will live in some ways. <laughs> you help us live. That's what I'd be appreciative. There's a lot of people in there. You get extra uh, bonus episodes that are great. We've been doing, we might put one out. Uh, I interviewed a clubber. Uh, it's not even an interview; it's just a podcast. I don't even like saying it, it was an interview. It's a, a, a friend, Combo. John, who uh, I've talked to before, and he has just a phenomenal story. Maybe we'll put that out, or uh, just to show you all what that's like. But if you're in the BC Club and uh, you got a story to tell, we'll probably have you on a podcast for the uh, for the club for and the rest uh, of the community. Yep, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, so yeah, join it. Go to where do they go to join the BC Club? TheBCClub.com yep do it now go uh go there sign up for bc club go to Mary supply get you know whatever size vibrator that you want and then you're going to have a hell of a weekend and life and life until the
2: death and that's fine too